You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 41. Today we're asking the question, how do you do ethnographic interviews? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray, I'm here with Dave Proven, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. We've had a couple of requests from feedback to do an episode about how to apply ethnographic research techniques in your own organisation as a safety practitioner. We went looking to try to find a paper we could discuss about this. We couldn't find one that was suitable, but we thought it was an interesting topic, so we'd do an episode about it anyway. This isn't our first how-to episode, episode 34, we talked about how to locate research papers. So let's just consider this as our second how-to episode, asking the question, how do you do ethnographic interviews? So Drew, this is, I suppose this isn't entirely an evidence-free zone. We've both got quite a bit of experience doing ethnographic uh, research methods. And you know, a lot of the information in the, in the textbooks that we've referred to in preparation for this episode sort of has that practical information and that empirical information. Drew, maybe we've, we use the word ethnography and ethnographic as if we expect people to understand what it is, but maybe just before we dive in, do you want to give a bit of an overview about what ethnography is and, and how ethnographic interviews might be a little bit different from how people might think about um, interviews in general? You're putting me on the spot a little bit because I, I put ethnography in the title of this episode, but I haven't actually like looked up a precise definition of ethnography. But I guess from my point of view, the idea of ethnography is to understand something by living and observing as close to it as possible. We sometimes talk about close ethnographic work where the researcher is like physically in amongst what's happening or slightly distant ethnographic work where the work is happening nearby. And an interview is a good example of slightly distant ethnographic work. Although often, like, interviews don't have to occur in a closed interview room with two people on either side of a desk. A lot of ethnographic interviews happen out in the field. And that's how we'd imagine safety practitioners using this sort of technique, is being on site with people who do the work and only as far removed from the work as is necessary that you can hear each other. Yeah, Drew, I like the way you've described that and apologies for putting you on the spot a little bit. I'm not sure how familiar our listeners are with with, with some of the language that we use in, in research and and also um, you know, how many other episodes they might have tuned into previously. But that's how I think of ethnography as well. I think of it about as how we understand and describe a particular situation or system or or event or circumstance in front of us and do that, like we've said a few times in the podcast, with a with a blank piece of paper. So you you want to you want to understand certain things. So what we'll talk about today with interviewing is you need to guide your data collection so that you fill that paper up with things that are going to be useful to you, not just kind of a whole bunch of random observations. But as far as possible, you want to suspend your judgment, open up your mind and just record the things that you see and hear and observe. And David, maybe you could say a little bit about why you think this is relevant for safety practitioners, because we weren't actually asked to do this episode by, we know we've got some listener researchers, but we're actually asked by a couple of practitioners if we could talk about this. Yeah, Drew, you mentioned in the, the end of your last comment just, just before how you know you imagine a safety practitioner walking around a site and don't think of this as a two people sitting across a desk. And I think that's the first thing for practitioners to really think about. So 
So it's not like sitting down, getting a witness statement for an incident investigation or some other formal process. When I think about ethnographic interviewing, I'd almost be thinking about any one-on-one communication that takes place between yourself and someone else in your organization. And when you, I mean, the intention of that one-on-one communication, well, at least part of the intention should be an aim of getting some kind of data, eliciting some kind of information from the other person that you are speaking with. So what you need and, and what we'll talk about through this process is what knowing what you're interested in, in terms of your data or information, and then creating a structure around that one-on-one interaction so that you can elicit that data and then what you're going to do with that, you know, how that's useful to you and how you take it forward. So for practitioners, this could literally be a casual conversation with a site manager while you're walking around a site or a plant or a, a sit-down one-on-one catch-up meeting with your CEO. And I think I'd encourage as we go through this episode, all listeners, um, particularly practitioners, to reflect on all these one-on-one conversations that they have every day in their workplace and how they could utilize these one-on-one engagements to get better insights and better information that they can then use to improve the safety of work in their in their own organization. Thanks for that, David. Just as you were saying that, I was thinking of something from... I think it was actually the first day I did my own training in this sort of stuff. And I was told that normal conversations are one-on-one engagements. So in other words, it's really a two-way exchange where the value is for each person and each person is doing a roughly equal amount of sharing and listening. And I think sometimes we make that mistake in safety that we think that engagement, those conversations are not as balanced as that. They're mostly about the safety practitioner imparting and guiding. And so the purpose of the conversation is for them to convey. And in fact, what we really want when we turn a conversation into an interview is the exact reverse. We want something that is a good conversation with all of the attributes of a good conversation. But we want it as much as possible to be information flowing from the person that we're listening to towards us rather than in the other direction. And so some of the tips and tricks we add in are just to make it a good conversation. And some of the things we add in are to make that flow of information go in the right direction so that we're getting the information rather than imparting it and guiding. I think, Drew, they're good starting points in terms of receiving information and thinking about how much you're actually talking and how much you're actually receiving and then how you build in some of those things around making it a good, just a good normal conversation. So Drew, you've listed here sort of some key principles and do we want to run through them now? And then what I want to do is also try and put a lot of examples in there in there with them to really help our, our listeners really take away some, some practical things that they can do with all these one-on-one conversations they're having in their business. Okay, so, so, so we've got four sort of top-level principles and then a whole heap of sub-bullet points. So let's just go through them in order and see how we go. So the first overarching principle is that we want to make the interviewee comfortable. So that comes down to thinking about where you're doing the interview. Uh, one of the great advantages of ethnography is we do it as much as possible on-site. An environment where the person being interviewed is familiar, they feel at home, Uh, In safety, often our sites are not necessarily the safest places to stop and have a chat, but vehicles are great. Sometimes like deliberately going and sitting in the vehicle, sometimes just being in the vehicle, driving around to and from site is a great time to talk. So David, how are you feeling? You're in your own home, sitting down. 
Can I get you a glass of something to drink? Am I in my home, Drew? This is the first podcast. Uh, this will come out, I think, in about four or five weeks' time from when we're recording it now. But yes, this is this is the first podcast we've recorded when I'm in full-on stage four, six-week uh, lockdown. Can't leave your house at night. Can't be more than five kilometers from your house more than once, you know, or, or can't leave more than once a day. So I should be very comfortable, but it's it's actually quite uncomfortable at the moment, Drew. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is that I've got you trapped there, yeah. unable to get away from the conversation. <laughs> Hence why we're four to five weeks in front of recording the podcast. But um, but in all seriousness, we we talked on episode, I think we talked about an ethnography way back on something like episode two on why do people break rules. And we talked about the eth- ethnographic research happening in vehicles, like you mentioned, but also in in lunchrooms, on work sites and things like that. And I think having a location and having a place and a time and and a setting that the person who you're trying to get some information from about their life and their reality, their perception of the world is uh, is in a setting which is as natural as possible for them. So, so the second part about making people comfortable is recognizing that these things are a little bit artificial. And so we do want people to not be suspicious of the fact that we're having the conversation. And that requires acknowledging that you know, we are having an interview and explaining why it's happening so that they know what the agenda is. So for researchers, we often have quite formal processes for giving people participant information sheets, etc. Uh, David, I don't know what you think. To be honest, I find the ethics a bit annoying because I think it actually makes people less comfortable rather than more when you say, let's have a chat. And by the way, can you sign this form before we do? Yeah, I think when when I did my research during my PhD, Drew, I, I set up a specific meeting just to get the ethics signed and and introduce the person to the study. And then I actually set up the interview a couple of weeks after that first meeting. I, I literally went to a first interview just to say, this is the study, here's the consent, here's what it's going to be like, and I'll set up a time when we'll actually have the interview just to kind of avoid that artificial situation at the start. So I don't know if that's normal, but I found that process to work pretty well. No, no, that's a fantastic idea, actually. And very often researchers find that interviewing someone twice is more effective than interviewing them once, just because that first interview is often very, very static and artificial. The other thing to be really careful of, Drew, is I'm doing a project at the moment for an organisation and... um, you know, trying to understand the work that people do in in the safety organisation, and obviously there's there's a lot of change happening in organisations at the moment around things like roles and structures, and in all organisations. So, you know, for me to get the information I need to get out of those people, then I need to explain how that's separate from maybe you know getting information where they think that might result in them losing their job at some point in the future. So, being careful in safety, we know we talk about safety being sometimes very politically political politically motivated and. And, you know, not having the sort of psychological safety that we'd hope to have. So if you really want to get the information that you're looking for, then sometimes you need to be really clear about why the interview is happening, like you say, Drew, but how the information is going to be used and what you want the information for. One thing that I do, and I don't quite know how effective this is, but I do tell people what the exceptions are. And I hope that by telling them the exceptions, that then leaves them comfortable about other things. So, you know, like I tell them, you know, if you tell me about an ongoing hazard that hasn't been fixed, I may have to tell someone about it. If you tell me a crime or something that you're planning to do that's dangerous, I may have to tell something, someone about that. You know, outside those bounds, you're going to be personally protected. So having easy openings is another one about being comfortable. So just having a really, some really general discussion. Um, 
we talk a little bit in um, we we now do lots of interviews which are outside the academic world in in the world of work. We always say that you know we always start with a personal connection, and it might be something about the weather, it might be something about COVID, it might be about a hobby, it might be about something you did on the weekend, but just an an easing into a conversation, even if you've got quite a intense sort of set of semi-structured questions and some deep thinking that you want to do during the during the discussion or the interview really creating some kind of personal connection. We actually call it, you know, create a personal connection before you ask a question. This is something that most people should be familiar with from job interviews. The way the first question is actually just a throwaway to make the person comfortable. And sometimes we forget about that in research. We think, you know, every answer has to give us useful information. But there's nothing wrong with a first question that's not going to give you any useful information. It's purely just to get the person talking, used to talking, make them comfortable, make that personal connection. Yeah. How are you going? What do you do on the weekend? Just tell me a bit about your job. What do you do here? Drew, I'm going to let you introduce the next one because I don't know where you're going to take it. Oh, so, so, so the final point about making the interviewee comfortable, I've got listed here, don't be creepy. And the reason I've got that is that it, the interview process is a little bit artificial and there's lots of stuff that you can learn about how to do it. And lots of the stuff that you learn is just total bollocks. And I'm thinking here about things like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, or uh, the way it appears these days is often in like online pickup guides, how to you know, talk to strangers, how to make them comfortable. I just want to reassure people that that's not what you have to do in order to deliberately get better at active listening. So types of things not to do. Uh, you'll see, Dave, that one of the things they mention is that if you mention someone's name, David, very often... And just drop their name casually into the conversation, David. That'll build the personal connection. And it actually just makes someone want to back off and wonder what they're getting at, David. <laughs> look, I think that's yeah, a bit creepy. So, look, I think making the interviewee comfortable. So, if we just recap. So, we talked about location, why it's happening, easy openings, don't be creepy. So, there's a real difference as a safety practitioner between rolling up to a site, saying g'day to the, to the plant manager, you know, asking to go for a walk, getting a cup of coffee, talking about the weather, and then having a discussion about kind of like some information that you're trying to get, as opposed to, you know, setting a meeting invite, rolling up on site, inviting someone into your office, sitting them down across the table and launching straight in. They're, they're very different sort of settings. And I think the, the outcome will be, Drew, that you'll get a different uh, depth of conversation depending on how you do that, do that opening. That's it exactly. So the second main principle is to get the interviewee talking and to keep them talking. So to avoid injecting yourself into the conversation, actually holding yourself back from the way you normally would. Most of us aren't conscious of the fact that when we're in conversations, we're spending more attention and effort on our own next participation than we are on the participation of the person across from us. And so putting a bit of direct effort into keeping the other person talking really pays off in the quality of information that you get. Yeah, Drew, I, I, I think you're right. I think really I, I try to have these big landmarks, if you like, of, okay, I, I want to get information about these three or four things and I might have half an hour, an hour to do that. So I know I need to ask three or four clear questions and we'll talk about questions in a while. But in between that, I really uh, make sure that there's space just to let the conversation go um, and not course correct it too quickly before you've kind of let it run its course with what what people want to say about about each topic so 
you're right, Drew. If you're if you're ready to ask the next question, then you miss the opportunity to explore more deeply the answer to the first question. And if you think about that quite literally, three or four questions over thirty or forty minutes—that's your goal—is keep the other person talking for ten minutes about the question that you've just asked. I mean, if you ever have the fun to be in an interviewing class that I'm teaching, this is one of the exercises that we give people is your job is to keep the other person talking for five minutes without asking a question. And there's a bunch of uh, sort of little things that you can do that can help with this. The first one is a sort of double barrel of scanning questions and story invitations. So the idea of a scanning question is just finding out what the person is willing to talk about. There's no point in asking a sort of deep question about something that they've never experienced. Um, so a classic scanning question might be, has there ever been a time when you felt that you were really unsafe on site? Now, notice that, that that's actually a yes or no question. The intent is just to sort of find out if there's a type of experience that someone is willing to talk about. Or you might give them a list and say, you know, there's a few different things we're interested in. We're interested in sort of particularly difficult interactions you've had with clients or with supervisors or with senior members of staff. You know, are there any of those that you'd be comfortable talking about? Or even true, even in some some of the work I mentioned just before in terms of a, a safety organisation, just starting the the interview with a question like, um, look, before we dive into anything specific, really interested in your general thoughts about how the uh, safety organisation is currently functioning and what some of the frustrations and challenges are that you face in your role. A question like that and just let them straight off the front of their mind, launch into whatever they want to talk about, get, get something off their chest. Um, you know, really open kind of way. I find that that at least gives someone a chance to just start talking for five minutes about whatever they want to. Yeah, I really like that one. And the, the idea of those sort of scanning questions is they then give you an opportunity to ask a follow-up, which is uh, phrased because you know that they're going to have a story about something. And so you invite them to tell you that story. So if you've asked them about the safety organization, they've said like the real problem here is that we just have got really clueless supervisors. So you say, okay, so tell me a story about one of your supervisors. Well, so, you know, the problem is that you know, we can never get the right equipment. You say, okay, so, so tell me about the worst time you were stuck with the wrong equipment. And I think, Drew, that you, I think our, our listeners might be able to see that if you, you know, that scanning question can be quite random, but it's better if it's sort of on point or on topic with the, the, the theme of the information that you're trying to get from the rest of the discussion. So even if we're not talking about just a specific research project, I want to go back to the safety practitioner and the site manager. Even just um, these general scanning questions about, you know, what are, what, is, what, is, what are your biggest challenges at the moment on site? And not even talking about safety, but just starting with a, you know, what are you guys struggling with at the moment on site? Or how are things going on site? Even something like that is just a really nice broad scanning question to set the, the context and the operational context for, you know, any further discussion about safety. Yep. So, uh, David, if it's okay, I'd like to take a little bit of a dive into some of the specific things that people can work on in order to get people talking and keep them talking. Um, and, and these are actually genuinely practicable skills. They're things that we all do some of the time instinctively, but the more you're sort of conscious of doing them deliberately, the more you can work on uh, that sort of deliberate interview style of getting people to keep talking. The, the way I like to think about it is there's like a a meter in the background that measures how comfortable the person is. And the more comfortable they are, the more aggressive or proactive you can be in trying to get information out of them. 
the less comfortable they are, the more minimalist you want to apply different skills to keep them talking. So, Drew, how about how about you go through this um, this sort of deeper list? And what I might try and do is uh, is role play the interviewer on the on the way through. So, Drew, do you want to tell me a little bit about some of these skills you can use to improve your interviewing technique? Okay, sure, David. Thanks. So, so the first skill is the idea of minimal encouragers. A minimal encourager is just where you say little things to keep the person going. Can you tell me a bit more about that, Drew? Sure. So, so it doesn't have to be, you know, a direct question or a statement. It can just be an aha, uh-huh, a, a yep, a nod, and mm, tell me more. Just anything that just says I'm listening and you keep talking. Okay. And you find that whereas you might be inclined to jump in with a question, just showing that you're listening and not jumping in sort of hands the conversation back to the person with just those little sounds and dodges. David's finding it really hard now to do this over Zoom, but if you could see the picture, you'd see he's just sort of nodding and waving his hands to keep me talking. I'm not quite waving my hands, but so Drew, that's a bit of more encouragers and, and I like the way you've described that. Have you got another one? So the second one is reflection of content. So that's where you just pick one or two words out of what the person said, and you just repeat those words back to them as a way of getting them to keep talking. A way of getting them to keep talking? Yeah, so just that little reflection sort of hands the ball back to them in the conversation. And once they've got the ball, they just, you will often turn that into whole new sentences or paragraphs. Great, so another one. So the third one is reflection of emotion. So this is the one that like the real stereotype is with a psychologist sort of like sitting deep thoughts and saying, oh, I can hear pain in your voice or you know, tell me what you're feeling. But, it, but the idea is to sort of just tap in a little bit to not the content of what they're saying, but the tone and just acknowledge what you're hearing. So, you know, that sounds a bit frustrating. I can hear you're really excited about this. I can sense you're a little bit uh, cynical of psychologists. Uh, not at all. Um, but that is one of the ways in which reflection of emotion works is because people either say, yes, you're hearing me exactly, or they say no, and then they explain what they really mean <laughs> and they give you the true emotion. So you say, you, you know, you're cynical. And I say, no, actually, I'm excited. And it doesn't matter whether you're right or not. You've got me emotionally engaged in what I'm saying. Great, great. And number four. So the next one is silence. Silence is one that I personally love. Because it's basically like a game. The person who talks next loses. So this is something that actually professional interrogators use a lot, is silence is uncomfortable. And when someone breaks a silence and begins talking, they often reveal stuff that they might not have said otherwise. And so the general rule is just to remember that however uncomfortable you're feeling, the silence is never quite as long as it actually feels. And the other person is feeling that discomfort too. So often if you're sort of not sure what to say, just creating that silence, you feel like you've got to say something to keep the conversation going, but actually just being silent will keep it working. David is now just going to sit here until I say the next thing. So I'll, I'll move right on because dead air on a podcast is never fun. So what happens when you try those things and the conversation just naturally spills to a stop? That's when rather than just reflecting small amounts of content, you reflect back to them what you've heard, show that you actually weren't just listening, but you've genuinely understood. Yeah, Drew, when, with that, I, I really like to connect certain things they've said all the way through the conversation just to bring things back up. And, and sometimes just that. So, oh, I remember at the start of the conversation, you said this, and then we talked about this, and then we talked about that. And sometimes that's just enough to collect thoughts for you know the conversation to continue without even another question. 
Yeah. And if you get really stuck, you don't just you know, give a short paraphrase, but you give a whole summary of everything so far. And I could guarantee you that 95% of the time you will not get through a summary of what's been said so far before the person wants to correct you or expand on something that you're summarizing to make sure that you've really understood it. And they're off again and you go back to all of the minimal encourages. Great. So Drew, those, those skills, and, and we, we had planned to do that, but I thought I might just have a go at it anyway. Um, so, so just those minimal encourages, reflecting content, reflecting emotion, silence, paraphrasing, summaries, all, all of those things can just help achieve what we're trying to achieve, which is keep the person talking, keep them talking about topics in relation to the information that we're trying to, that we're trying to get as honestly and as genuinely as possible. Fantastic summary, David. And that provides also a perfect segue to the next principle, which is steer the conversation, don't lead the interviewee. So all of these things so far are just about getting someone talking. And obviously there are particular things that we do want to talk about. But the real trick is not to directly feed them those topics, but to let those topics emerge as naturally from the conversation. So, so a few sort of little things here. One of them is the idea of closed first open questions. Um, Dave, I think this is probably something that's familiar to most people, but you just want to give a quick summary on the difference between a closed and an open question. Yeah, look, a, a closed question, I suppose, I mean, I, I see a closed question as, as something that just gives a categorical or a binary type of response, like a yes, no, or a red, blue, green, like what color is this? Or do you think this or this, as opposed to an open question, which is which is more probing in terms of not having those kind of categories and choices. I don't know what the opposite is, Drew, or how to describe it. But if I gave an example, and also one that tied back into steering the conversation, not leading it, there's a very big difference between asking a question like, do you have too many safety procedures in your company? Versus saying, you know, what are your thoughts about the safety procedures in this organization? Yeah, I, I think that absolutely highlights the difference between closed and open, is that one of them, they might give you a longer answer, but they could, in principle, just give you a yes-no answer. Whereas the second one, there is no yes-no or one-word answer that they can give. And I think particularly, you need to think about a bit of a deviation here, Drew, but I'm just shooting your thoughts. You need to think about your power as an interviewer. Like if you're the safety manager and you're talking to someone who's not a safety person about a safety topic, you've got this kind of like, um, well, you can call it a bit of model monopoly, like uh, you, you, you've got some level of authority over, over the topic. So if you've got an interviewee who's got a level of agreeableness is they might not want to disagree with you as the interviewer. So if you, if they sense that you hold a certain belief about something, like our safety management practices aren't effective or, or are effective, you, you need to be really careful to be completely neutral in the way that you're asking questions and the way that you're participating in the conversation so as not to just get the interviewee to just agree with you. Yeah. So th there's a couple of ways that we can deal with those power imbalances. Basically, by giving people almost a playful game in which they can step into those spaces in a way that is not particularly threatening to them. So one of the things that looks like a closed question, but is actually a fairly open question, is give me five words to describe this. So instead of saying, you know, do you think the safety procedures are ineffective? Or the very open question, tell me about the safety procedures. You give, say, give me five words that you think describe our safety procedures. It's always numbers four and five that are sort of most revealing <laughs> as people get rid of the glib answers early. And you can always like sometimes jump in and say, you know, no, tell, tell me the number of four and five that you really want to say here. 
Yeah, no, I think it's good. I think so. Questions are are, are really important. So closed versus open questions and leading questions. And and Drew, you've got a, you've got another one there. Un- unnecessary questions. Yeah, so I might just quickly talk about leading questions first, because th- this is a problem that even experienced interviewers have sometimes, is when there's a particular topic that we want to know about, we've got a bad habit of including that topic in the question. And so, of course, that topic comes up in the answer. So let's say I want to know what's the biggest challenge for on-site investigations. And I strongly suspect that the answer is lack of adequate training. So my first draft of the interview is, uh, do you think the training is adequate? (laughs) And my second draft is, tell me about the training. But I'm still leading too much. I'm still feeding them that the answer to the broader question is about training. What I really should do is if I think the answer is training, I should just say, tell me about when investigations are difficult. And if I'm right that training matters, then training is going to come up in the answers. If I'm not right, it's not going to come up. But if it comes up in answer to a very open question, then I can say, look, all of my interviewees, when they were asked what they needed most, said training. That's very different when I've said, do you need training? And they've all said yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree, Drew. I think, and and it's something that you have to be very conscious about because we're inside our organizations, we're asked for our advice as safety professionals a lot, and we're expected to have the answers. So to actually what we're talking about here is is not having the answers and not even structuring the conversation around the things that you already believe. So that's why it actually takes quite quite a lot of deliberate thought into how am I going to engage in this one-on-one conversation to get the person's genuine view of you know their reality in relation to safety and you know in their role. So that's why I think this this episode's hopefully really useful to people, Drew, because I think we have so many opportunities every day to have really genuine one-on-one conversations that we're probably just squandering. So, so that probably is a good time to then talk about that last category of steering the conversation, which is the idea of unnecessary questions. I mean, I think rather than saying this myself, the best thing I can do is quote from uh, the training manual that I found most useful. And later in the episode, we'll give you a reference for this if people want to find it themselves. It's uh, called Gelder and Gelder. And it's, it's actually a manual for psychologists and psychiatrists and counsellors. So, but I think you could just sort of like substitute the word counsellor for the word interviewer and the word client for interviewee, and it all works perfectly. So the section is satisfying the interviewee's needs. It's very easy for new interviewers to fall into the habit of asking questions at inappropriate times instead of using other more useful micro skills. If you find yourself doing this, Ask yourself what your goal is. Why are you asking questions? Are you just curious and seeking information to satisfy your own curiosity? If so, this is not a legitimate reason for asking questions. By asking a question to satisfy your own needs, you might interrupt the natural flow of the interviewee's conversation. If your goal is to stimulate the interviewee into talking, then you're probably using the wrong approach. More often than not, simply reflecting back what's already been said will stimulate the interviewee into further sharing important and relevant information without the need for you to ask a question. And this comes up constantly when we look at interview transcripts. You look at a transcript and it's just question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. And you talk to the young interviewer and you say, what the heck's going on? And they say, I had to keep asking questions because the person was giving me really short answers. And sort of the most important thing to learn in interviewing is that's reversed. The reason why you were getting really short answers is because you kept asking questions. If you want to get them to talk, 
you've just got to shut up and stop asking questions. And Dave, I know your kids are pretty young, but parents learn this. <laughs> you doesn't matter whether you're talking about a client, an interviewee, or a teenager. They're all sort of interchangeable. If they're not opening up to you, the trick is not to ask more questions. The trick is to stop asking questions and give them space to open up. Yeah, I like that quote, Drew, and I think it's um, it is a skill. And and some of the some of the preparation for this episode reminded me of my third year psychology undergraduate degree and and counselling psychology courses. And I mean, these skills are are not. I mean, I don't even know. I mean, these skills aren't taught in in safety courses at sort of any level. But it's probably the most useful. I don't. I can't think of another skill that is more useful, Drew, in in your role as a safety professional than you know knowing how to ask good questions. Yeah, I guess I should point out that safety practitioners are not counsellors. And one of the dangers that any interviewee, sorry, interviewer experiences is if you're really good at listening, people will talk to you. And sometimes that can actually be uncomfortable because they feel comfortable sharing stuff with you that you're not necessarily comfortable hearing. And so actually the better you get at this, the more you need to develop these auxiliary skills about setting boundaries and recognising when the conversation is turning therapeutic instead of information collecting and steering it back away from that yeah that's a good point drew i think it's it's good to good to remember the boundaries of our professional practice practice and our professional ethics but um i mustn't be very good because i don't think i've ever quite had someone um yeah tell me too much that that could just be very good at the boundary setting maybe so drew the fourth principle you've got there okay so the fourth principle is about allowing space for unexpected content this is related to the previous one uh, that sometimes there is stuff that we are never going to hear because we're not asking the right questions. And so rather than asking lots and lots of questions, the trick is to make things that are open enough that they can actually extract even when we don't have the questions quite right. And um, my favorite personal one is just say, you know, this is what the interview is out is about. What questions should I have asked you? <laughs> and just get them to tell me what they wanted to talk about that they didn't get a chance to. Yeah, Drew, look, the last, the same piece of work that I spoke about a couple of times through this episode, the last question that I've been, I've been entering those conversations about, you know, how to improve the roles of, of safety professionals has just been that general thing is that is, is there any message or, or insight or piece of information that you want me to leave with? Cause it can help make your role better. And just a really general open question about just saying, is there anything I can do for you to help you is I find those good open questions. Now, I, I, I like that. Sometimes I use a similar one, which is you know, the end product of this research is going to be a report to management. Is there anything that you want to make sure goes into that report? Yeah, no, I like that. I, yeah, I think that one's good good as well. So, so final, final principle I wanted to, and I deliberately sort of left this one to last, um, is the idea of reflexivity. Reflexivity is a technical term we use in research methods. And it basically just means that the person who is doing the research can't pretend to be objective. They can't pretend that they are just this isolated camera that is going around collecting information with no opinions of its own and no ability to steer the research. And the protection is not to try to be unbiased. It's to be self-aware of the fact that we are all subjective. I don't even like the word bias because it sort of suggests that you can be biased or not biased. We're all subjective. It's just being aware of that. So part of that's openly acknowledging to yourself where you're coming from, uh, working out what you already believe. Sometimes I actually get my research students to interview themselves 
and then to write down the results of what how they would answer each of the questions just so that they can recognize when their own thoughts are coming up in the interviews. Another one is think about what you expect the answer to be and then go back and make sure that your questions aren't dragging that answer out of people but are leaving room for them to give you the answer that you expect. So you know if you think that the problems with the procedures is going to be an answer to something don't ask are there problems to the procedures but do ask a question that someone could naturally say that in response to if that was in fact the problem. David, you spent quite a lot of time doing these interviews. What sort of things did you do to manage your own position relative to the research? So my first uh, my first go at ethnographic research was the episode 30. We talked about professional identity. And if listeners might recall, I had four questions, which was, uh, tell me about your safety background. Tell me how you think organizations should approach safety management and what's your role as a safety professional and, you know, how do you, how do you, judge success in your role. I made sure that I had four very open questions. I made sure they were all personal to the person. So it didn't matter what I thought because I asked, what's your background? How do you think safety should be managed? You know, what do you think your role is and how do you judge success for yourself in your role? So it really, it wasn't, it, I think Drew, it wasn't a, an objective question. It wasn't something that had a right or a wrong answer. It was only the answer that the person gave um, that was, that was, uh, relevant to them personally. So I, I, I really like that because that really helped me in my first go at this not feel like, you know, it was a discussion where I had a role to play in arriving at what the answer was because I had absolutely no role to play in arriving at what that answer was for that person. So, so tell me a bit about how you personally reacted when you got those answers back because they can't be topics that you haven't thought about yourself. Yeah, it's a long, it's a long time ago now and I probably didn't do it as well as I'd like to think that I that I did it at the time. But, um, but when people started, started talking, it was, I mean, it was pretty hard to stop people talking with those open questions. I think with those four questions and a bit of minimal encouragers and some of those other techniques, the interviews went between 50 minutes and an hour and a half with, with four questions. I'd usually either just relate an experience that I'd had that aligned with an experience that someone told, or just, just let them feel like the answers they were giving weren't being judged or, weren't seen as being wrong. I think that was really important to keep people talking. So I try to reflect some content and reflect a little bit of my own experience that just supported that they weren't, you know, telling me a crazy story. And other than that, Drew, I don't think I did much else to really just keep the conversation going. So what I'm hearing there is almost like very strategic inserting yourself into those interviews. So you're in a normal conversation, they share, you share. In this case, you're sharing, but it's not just random sharing. It's sharing in a way that's intended to show them that they are not alone, that they are supported, that there's no wrong answer. So you're matching your experiences to theirs to validate what they're saying to you. Yeah, picking snippets of what they're saying that that, that line up with things that you might have something to just just share as well. Because if, if someone's sharing very personally with, with you, then it can help the conversation if you also find ways to share a little bit personally as well as an interviewer, not just being this, this uh, blank faced person nodding and smiling at them as, as someone starts to open up. So in that example, when people were telling me about, you know, why they decided to do something at uni or how they ended up in safety or what they think of, of senior management, just putting little vulnerable and personal kind of reflections of my own experience that, that lined up with their experience, just kept the conversation going deeper and deeper. So, David, that leads me into something that's not in our notes. So I'm going to put you on the spot. 
What do you do when the interviewee says something that you strongly disagree with or that you think is actually wrong? How do you handle that as an interviewer? Yeah, look, I think that's probably taking more time and I don't feel the need to be right about anything too much anymore. So I, I, I sort of try to react to that with curiosity. So, you know, I would probably approach to that as something like, something like, oh, I've never thought about it in that way. Or, gee, that wouldn't have been the way that I would have normally thought about that or something. And just ask, why, you know, why would you say it like that? Or why would you, or, or what's what's underneath your, your thoughts about that? So, so ask it in a way that just goes, oh, I haven't thought about that. I didn't know that. Or that's not how I think about it. And now I'm curious. And now I want you to tell me more about why you think think like that. No, thanks for that. I think that's one of those things that does become difficult in interviews, particularly when you feel like you're getting a surface truth from someone. So if it's like genuinely their opinion, fine, you know, you can explore and expand it. But when someone's like telling you something that, you know is not correct, but they think is what you want to hear can get difficult. Yeah, look, I think it can get difficult, but I think in a practitioner sense, I think, Drew, people have to become really comfortable with that. Like I've been in a a few meetings lately where we've been sort of getting some very honest feedback from parts of an organisation, like what the frontline think about senior management and what um, middle management think about the safety organisation and things like that. And it's really interesting just to see how, bad or bad people in organizations are at taking any sort of um, negative feedback about their role. So my the stretch challenge, maybe we didn't put in the notes, Drew, but I'd encourage if someone wants to practice their interviewing techniques, go to your managers in your organization and ask like, what are the things that you don't like about what the safety department does? Or what are the things that you don't like about how I do my role? And then just shut up and listen would be a really interesting test of your interviewing techniques and keeping someone talking and and doing it non-judgmentally and hopefully they open up and they give you some feedback that you can use to uh to change the way you're working that's a great challenge david Um, i have to admit the way i usually weasel out of it is to remove myself from the interview but use other bits of data you know it's 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 really interesting that you tell me that I, i have heard from a few other people that it doesn't quite work as well as you're suggesting you, have you encountered any of those difficulties? Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, someone's telling me about the safety policy that everyone loves. I might say, you know, um, yeah, I have heard a few hints that you, you have to say that. Is that really what you mean? But I guess that comes back to that comfort level we were talking about earlier, that you can only really sort of challenge and push back once you have given someone a chance to open up and you've listened and validated so Drew, we'd normally move here to practical takeaways and, and this whole episode's really been hopefully quite practical in terms of takeaways. So I might just do a quick summary and then um, ask you to, to share some resources that we can put in the show notes about how our listeners might do more with this. And, you know, this episode was really about having people understand that you have a lot of one-on-one conversations in your role. And by thinking about how we apply some ethnographic interviewing techniques, could get you a whole lot more insight and information that you can use in your role to improve uh, the safety of work in your organization. And to do this, you need to make the person comfortable. You need to get the person talking and keep them talking about things that uh, are going to provide some insights that uh, are useful to you. You want to steer the conversation down that track, but not lead the interviewees to just tell you what you already know or to give you the answer that um, you want them to give you. And creating this space for unexpected content. So really open questions about 
you know, what's happening outside of safety and, you know, what's not being done in the organization that should be being done and so on. And then acknowledging your role in that about, you know, being reflexive. So, so you are biased, like you said, Drew, you are subjective and you need to own that, but you need to be really careful that you don't project that onto other people um, or you're not going to get genuine information that can help you. So Drew, resources um, that we can put in the show notes and our, our listeners can go to if they want to uh, look at more examples and look at more techniques. Okay, so the first one that I'd recommend is one of my favorite books on my shelf. It's called Basic Personal Counseling by David Geldard and Catherine Geldard. Um, it's a four-part book. Three of them are to do with actual crisis-style counseling. But part two is purely about basic principles and skills. And it just doesn't just describe the skills. It tells you how to learn them, how to practice them, how to use them in normal conversation and in different situations. Um, so I'd recommend that as one of the sort of like standards for a safety practitioner's shelf. So Drew, I might just jump in there because I don't know if David and Catherine are sisters or husband and wife, but um, if they're husband and wife and they've written a personal counselling book that uh, you recommend, I'd uh, they'd be fascinating dinner table conversations. I have to say, when I first learned this stuff, my first way of using it was just to try it out on my mother, come home, ask her a question and see how long I could keep her talking before she realised that I was practising the counselling training. The second one, this one's a bit more of a textbook. It's um, Qualitative Organisational Research, uh, edited by Gillian Simon and Catherine Castle. In particular, there's a great chapter in there by Catherine Haynes, which is just about reflexivity. So that how do you put yourself and understand yourself and your own role in qualitative research? Yeah, Drew, I think when I first walked into my PhD, you recommended that to me and it's um, and I, I've still got it sort of at the front of my shelf and I, I actually flick through it more regularly than I thought I would after doing my own research. So Drew, we'll put those, we'll put those references in the show notes. Any invitations to the listeners from this episode? So I guess the first thing we'd just like to ask is, is this sort of content useful for you? How often is interviewing part of your job or would you like it to be part of your job? And if you've got any uh, tips or tricks of your own that you'd like to share... You know, we'd like to start a little bit of a LinkedIn conversation. We've mentioned a lot of our own sort of shorthands and tools that we use. What do you use? What sort of questions to get people talking and keep them talking? And of course, I'll just put in a plug here that if there is any interest in training sessions for this stuff, um, this sort of stuff is, I find personally, very fun. It's something that I really like to do, equipping people for having genuinely good conversations rather than those sort of persuasive conversations that other types of safety try to teach. Yeah, look, I think we, like I, like I mentioned earlier, un, un sort of scripted, Drew, I think um, it was only when we were halfway through this episode that I realized just how important this skill is and how little it, it's represented in a lot of our safety-related training for safety professionals. So that's a great offer. So that's it for this week, Drew. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. Send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 